Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Bailey, well, you know, those of you who are norm, regular among us, I was going to say normal, and that's no, none of you. <clears throat> those who are regular, um, Pastor Bailey has been preaching through the book of Romans, and a few weeks ago, he came to this passage, uh, the last time he preached in Romans was Romans 8, 18 to 25, and uh, as often sometimes happens, um, Pastor Bailey preached through the sermon that he prepared in the first service, and then he came to the second service and saw different people. And the thing to, to know about Tim, um, that when he preaches, he sees you. He sees you. And he really does see you. And, he, and sometimes that means he preaches something different, depending on who's actually sitting in front of him. Okay? That's why if you ever, some of us might attend both services, any of you attend both services sometimes? And you, you might hear two different sermons. Well, it's because different people are there. And that is not um, a fault of Tim's, that's a huge strength, actually. Although it does complicate things sometimes. <laughs> and so he's gone uh, writing up in Michigan, working on another book, I think this one's on, the elder, on, on elders. Very necessary book, and we should be praying for him as he does that. Um, but I'm, I'm going to catch us up because in the second service a couple of weeks ago, he didn't preach the sermon really at all that he had preached in the first service. And so I'm, I'm going to preach on that same text so that when he comes back, he can move on, okay? Um, the passage is Romans 8, 18 to 25. Um, and he and I believe the same things, but of course, we're going to come to this differently and that's just the way it is and that's a good thing. And so, if you've heard this sermon before, you've heard the text before, you haven't heard the sermon before, all right? Um, The point of this passage is hope. Hope in the middle of suffering. That is the point. And your suffering could be normal suffering, could be ordinary, uh, that all of us have. So that's simply your existence in your body, which is dying right? Living around a bunch of other people whose bodies are dying, and that brings suffering. You're a sinner. Your sin brings suffering. It brings sorrow and regret and pain, not just to you, but to people around you, and their sin brings suffering to you too. That's ordinary. That's just normal. Um, Or your suffering could be extreme and extraordinary, more than most, more than others, extreme chronic pain, um, extreme ways that you've been sinned against, uh, temptations that are almost seemingly impossible for you to, to overcome, maybe persecution, dashed expectations, whatever. So no matter what your specific sufferings are, if you're a Christian, you suffer 
but you suffer in hope. And your whole existence, your whole salvation is wrapped up in hope. And that's what this passage is about. So look on the Bible, in your Bible, Romans 8, 18, or look on the screen. The Apostle Paul says this, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. This is the word of the Lord. So verse 18 starts with the word for, right? You see that? And so verse 18 is the reason for what he just said up in verses 16 and 17. So he says something in verses 16 and 17, then he's gonna give a reason for how he can say that or why he says it. So we have to read verses 16 and 17. I think it's gonna be up here. If not, it's in your Bible. Hear this. This is verses 16 and 17. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. All right, you see that? The Holy Spirit testifies with us that we're children of God and if we're children, then we're heirs. That means we stand to inherit something. Uh, What is it, by the way, that we stand to inherit? Hmm? What? The meek will inherit what? The earth? Ah. We'll come back to that. More than the earth, but certainly not less. All right? Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If we suffer with him, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. So he says all these wonderful things and then he says if, if indeed we suffer, so that we may be glorified. And so listen to this, your sonship depends on your suffering. Your sonship depends on your suffering. Okay, what do you mean by that, Paul? Why does our sonship depend on our suffering? How can you say that? Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Glory always comes only through suffering. Glory only comes always 
comes only through suffering. Think about that. That is the path of our Lord Jesus. That's how it was with him. He says of himself in Luke 24, 26, after he's been raised from the dead, he says, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Wasn't it necessary? This is how it had to be. In order to enter glory, I first had to suffer. Hebrews 2.9 says the same thing, but says this, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Listen to this. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. Not in spite of being suf- suffering death. Because of be- his suffering. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, of Jesus himself, he says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's exalted to the right hand of God, far above all rule and authority in every name because he suffered. And because it was his path, it has to be our path too. Because we are in Christ We are united with him. We are his people. 1 Peter 5.10 says this, after you have suffered for a little while, so he's talking to us Christians and he says, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you but not before suffering, not absent suffering, not apart from suffering, after you have suffered. He also says, or so he says in Romans 8, 16 and 17, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God and if children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, So that, so that what? We may also be glorified with them. That's the point of the suffering. The point of the suffering is so that we might be glorified with him. That's how it always is. That is the path to glory. Suffering, then glory. So how how do you feel about that? Is that depressing? He is saying you will have suffering. You will. You have to. You cannot escape it if you want to be a Christian. If you want to be a child of God, a son of God. So how do you feel about that? Depressed? Cynical? Um, Despairing? Bummed out? Stoic? You shouldn't feel any of those things. You should rejoice. Verse 18, 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's not even worth doing the math. Don't even waste your time. Don't even bother trying to compare them. Don't even try to work it out. Whatever suffering you are suffering, it's not even worth comparing with the glory. Your suffering doesn't even begin to measure up to the glory. Your pain, as real and intense as it is, and it is real and intense, no matter how real and intense it is, your pain is nothing compared to the joy in store for you if you are a child of God. Your pain is less than a, than a drop in the ocean of glory. Less than a drop. Drop it in the ocean of glory and there's no comparison. Your pain, your suffering is like a speck of dust on the scales. Totally irrelevant in the light of the glory. That's what he says. Now, so it's not worth doing the math, but there is an equation being worked out in our sufferings. There is something going on here. There is actually a correlation, but it's, it's better than we thought. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, the Apostle Paul says this. For momentary light affliction. Now, Pastor Bailey reminded us a couple weeks ago of the affliction that the Apostle Paul suffered. And um, none of us have the slightest idea what that was like. All right? And what does he call it? Momentary, light. Here's what he says. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So that's the connection. Don't go around comparing your suffering with the glory, but here's the truth. Your suffering is actually producing glory. And your momentary light affliction is producing an eternal weight. Momentary and light, eternal weight. Momentary light affliction, eternal weight of glory. How? How does that work? Here's what he says. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, temporary, momentary, but the things which are not seen are what? Eternal. So how do you, how can it be? How can you figure this? How can you look at your suffering feels pretty long-term, feels pretty heavy, be able to say, nope, momentary and light. It's only if you look at the thing that actually is eternal and heavy, and that's the glory, right? When you see the things that are not temporal, not temporary, the things that are seen, but the things that are not seen, things that you can't see yet by definition, things that you have to hope for, when you see those things, right, then it all gets flipped around. 
And what felt eternal and weighty becomes light and momentary. And what felt like nothing becomes an eternal weight of glory. So do you see the eternal things? If you could see the eternal things, an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, then your sufferings would look momentary and light. But he says these afflictions, all the pain you're suffering right now are not unrelated to the glory of your future. The affliction produces the glory. That's what he says. That's exactly what we see with our Lord Jesus. There is no glory without the suffering. You don't, he didn't bypass the suffering to get to the glory because he humbled himself to the point of death. Therefore, God highly exalted him. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and then to enter into his glory because of the suffering of death. He was crowned with glory and honor. So that's the way it is with him. But it isn't just true of him, it's true of you. But it's not just true of you. It's also true for the whole creation. So this isn't just true on the personal scale, it's true on the cosmic scale. And since it's true on the cosmic scale, can't you have faith, can't you have hope that it's true of you? That's what he's gonna do here in Romans eight. All right, he's gonna talk about you, then he's gonna go cosmic on us, and then he's gonna come back to you. Romans eight nineteen to 21. He says, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So think about this. What's true of our Lord Jesus is true of you, suffering, then glory. And what's true of you is true of the whole creation, suffering, then glory. So God himself has bound together three things. Christ's glory, your glory, and the whole creation's glory. Christ's suffering, your suffering, the whole creation's suffering. He has bound these things together. You can't cut them apart. Why? This is true because God structured the whole creation, the whole universe, unseen things as well as seen things. He has structured the whole creation according to a covenant, a covenant. It's the word you see all through the Old Testament. You see it all through the Bible. It's what testament means is covenant. What does that mean? It means that God built creation around the reality of headship and representation. Headship and representation. That's what you have to have as part of a covenant. And this goes all the way back to the very beginning. When God made Adam in his image, he made Adam the head. Not only of mankind, he is the head of mankind, 
but also of the whole cosmos, the whole physical creation. Listen to Genesis 1, 26 and following. He says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image and the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see? So Adam is the representative ruler under God of the whole creation. The whole physical creation. God made Adam to be the king of it. In Luke 3.38, Adam is called the son of God. Adam, the son of God. Now he's not the son of God in the way that Jesus is the son of God. He's not eternal, he's not uncreated, he's not God in the flesh, but he is nevertheless the son of God, which means he is the heir and ruler of all creation under God. Which, by the way, is what he makes us. Heirs of all things. Ruler, dominion. That position of rulership with Adam, that position of rulership and dominion is over all creation. Psalm Psalm 8. You have made him a little lower than God. This is talking about mankind. You've made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands and you put all things under his feet. Adam is intimately tied to creation. He's part of it, right? He's created. In fact, what is he made out of? He's made out of dust. And yet all things are under his feet. Intimately tied to the world that God made. And so as always is always the case in God's world, the well-being or the doom of the subjects always depends on the obedience or the rebellion of the master. Do you understand that? The well-being or the doom of the subjects always depends on the obedience or the rebellion of the master. This is true of your home, husbands and fathers, the well-being or the doom of your household depends on the obedience or the rebellion of you. This is true of our church, pastors and elders. This is true of our nation and state and town, civil magistrate. And it's true of the whole world, Adam. True of the whole world. When Adam rebelled against God, he did not rebel as a private citizen, as a separate, private individual where his sin just affected him and that's that. No. He fell as an officer, as a representative, as a father, 
as a covenant head. And so when he fell, as the Lord of creation, his whole realm fell with him. We see this in Genesis 3, after Adam fell, after Adam did the one thing God told him not to do. Here's what happens. Then to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. Right? The ground, cursed. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall... You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread. You will return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. And so when father Adam fell, his family fell. That's us. When King Adam fell, his realm fell. Not just the people, but the place which happens to be the cosmos. This is how God made the world. So this is true on the cosmic scale, it's true on the personal scale, it's also true on on the local scale. It's true of the whole universe, it's true of you and your own realm, your own sphere, your household, whatever you have authority over, and it's true of nations and places. God is always at work according to this principle, you reap what you sow. He built that into the world, in the spiritual world and in the physical world. It's the same thing, you reap what you sow. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. If you sow to the spirit, you will reap life and peace. And so listen, if a nation sows to the flesh, the whole nation, including the land, The land, the the dirt, the ground, the real estate, the mountains, the streams, the rivers, the prairies, all of it. Its land will reap corruption and judgment and desolation and death. This is the truth about the environment. This is the the truth about the well-being and the fruitfulness of the earth or the the destruction and the desolation of the earth. This is the truth. The land is not in jeopardy because men are living on it. The land is in jeopardy because rebellious, wicked, idolatrous men are living on it. And this this really is true. We have to stop thinking like pagans, all right? God made the world. God is, not, God is not distant from the world he made. The world, the earth, is the Lord's and all it contains. He upholds everything by the word of his power. All things were created through him, Jesus Christ, and for him. He holds it all together and he is in constant connection with it. He's not it. He's not the world, he's not the creation, he's the creator. Don't be a deist. A deist is someone who believes that God, yeah, okay, God made the world, sure, the Bible says that. 
But then the idea with deism is that then God leaves and has no connection with anything that happens on the earth. Hurricanes, nope. Tornadoes, nope. Drought, nope. Flood, nope. Fruitful, wonderful seasons, nope. Nothing. God has nothing to do with anything. And that is how we all think. The environment is, is at the mercy of mankind. Right? But not because we break the laws of man. You know, thou shalt not pollute, thou shalt not litter, thou shalt not burn fossil fuels, thou shalt not... Uh, Overstep your carbon allotment. Thou shalt be green. Seriously. The environment is at the mercy of, man, of mankind, not because we break the laws of man, but because we break the laws of God. If global climate change is happening... It's not happening, happening apart from God. It's not an accident. This isn't something that God is unaware of or disconnected from. He, if it's destructive and a judgment, he's the one bringing it. Because of us. Listen to this. Isaiah 24, one to six. Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste, devastates it, distorts its surface, and scatters its inhabitants. The earth will be completely laid waste and completely despoiled. For the Lord has spoken this word, the earth mourns and withers, the world fades and withers, the exalted of the people of the earth fade away. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants. Ah, there it is, see? Yeah, I knew pollution was in there somewhere. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants for they transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. These are God's laws, not ours. Therefore, a curse devours the earth and those who live in it are held guilty Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned and few men are left. Jeremiah 4, for thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation. Yet I will not execute a complete destruction. For this, the earth shall mourn and the heavens above be dark because I have spoken, I have purposed and I will not change my mind nor will I turn from it. Jeremiah 9, why is the land ruined, laid waste like a desert so that no one passes through? The Lord said, because they have forsaken my law which I set before them and have not obeyed my voice nor walked according to it, but have walked after the stubbornness of their heart and after the bales, as their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed them, this people, with wormwood and give them poisoned water to drink. 
over and over again. That's, that's what happens. Just scratching the surface here. This is, this is over and over and over again. Wilderness is a curse, not a blessing. Wilderness is a curse from God, not a blessing. For a land to be uninhabited is a curse, not a blessing. But we think of the wilderness as a good thing. We think of uninhabited as a good thing. We think of population growth as what? What? A curse. This is directly contrary to the word of God. For a land to be made a wilderness is a curse from God himself. Psalm 107, he changes rivers into wilderness and springs, those are good, into a thirsty ground, that's bad. A fruitful land, good, into a salt waste, bad. Because of the wickedness of those who dwell in it, because of the wickedness of those who dwell in it. But here's the thing, the opposite is also true. He goes on right in the next verse in Psalm 107, verse 35, he changes the wilderness into a pool of water and a dry land into springs of water and there he makes the hungry to dwell so that they may establish an inhabited city. Population, growth. And sow fields and plant vineyards and gather a fruitful harvest. Also, he blesses them and they multiply greatly. Right? He blesses them and they multiply greatly. And he does not let their cattle decrease. So not only the babies, but the the cattle. Listen to this, Ezekiel 36. God's, God's blessing on the land, on the earth, is always described in terms of many inhabitants and many cattle and many buildings and many fields and many vineyards. Lots of human population, lots of human habitation, lots of human civilization, lots of human cultivation. It's a blessing of God. Listen, Ezekiel 36. Therefore prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains and the hills, to the ravines and to the valleys. So we're not talking about the political entity, we're talking about the dirt, the ground, the land. Here's what you're to say. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I have taken, I have spoken in my jealousy and in my wrath because you have endured the insults of the nations. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I have sworn that surely the nations which are around you will themselves endure their insults. But you, O mountains of Israel, you will put forth your branches and bear your fruit for my people Israel, for they will soon come, for behold, I am for you. He's talking to the earth. I am for you. And I will turn to you. And you will be cultivated and sown. I will multiply men on you, earth. All the house of Israel, all of it. 
and the cities will be inhabited and the waste places will be rebuilt. I will multiply on you man and beast and they will increase and be fruitful and I will cause you to be inhabited as you were formerly and will treat you better than at the first. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. Yes, I will cause men, my people Israel, to walk on you and possess you so that you will become their inheritance and never again bereave them of children. This is God's blessing to the earth, his promise. Do you want to bring blessing and health to the land? That's something we should want. Do you want to bring blessing and health to the land? How does the world tell us to bring blessing and health to the land? Evacuate it. Leave it. Let it turn into wilderness. But there's more. Ultimately, the way that we are told right now to bring blessing to the land is to worship it. To worship it. To honor it. To respect it. To revere it. To worship it. Love your mother. Right? Now here's the thing. Uh, that's exactly the opposite of what will bring blessing to the land. Because God says, what is that? That's idolatry. That is worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And what happens when people worship the creature rather than the creator? What happens? Judgment, curse, doom, destruction, desolation. Here, here's the thing. You have to see this as what we're told today by the world about the earth is, is demonic. It's exactly satanic. Because Satan is always telling you the exact opposite of God's truth. God says, eat this and you'll die. What does Satan say? No, you won't. Eat this and you'll have blessing and life and exaltation. Right? Worship, God says, worship me and the land will be filled with fruit and plenty and peace and health. And Satan says, no, 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 no. Worship the earth. And in both cases, what comes? Destruction, death, doom, desolation. If you want to see, if you want to be an environmentalist and see the earth prosper, flourish, <laughs> right? Then preach the gospel there. Turn people away from their idolatry to worship and serve and obey and trust the true living God, the creator, not the creation. Psalm 96 is about preaching that gospel to the, to the nations. And here's what it says. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, that's all the nations of the earth. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. 
Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult and all that's in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord. This is the creation. For he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. One last passage from the Old Testament. Listen to this. Ezekiel 36. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of being in desolation in the sight of everyone who passes by. They will say, this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden. And the the waste, desolate and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left round about you will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. That's the truth. So do you see glory, blessing, fruitfulness, Population, what? Explosion. Why? Well, because the sons of God live there. Because the sons of God live there. This is not just true of a place here and a nation there. This is true ultimately of the whole creation. And here's the thing. The whole creation knows it, and the whole creation looks forward to it. Back to Romans 8, verse 19. Look at this. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from slavery to the cor- to corruption into the freedom of the children of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So you see, this is how God works. He is the one who subjected all of creation to fertility, not Satan, not Adam, but God. He is the one who cursed the land for Adam's sake, but he didn't do that as a cynic or as a vindictive, um, destructive despot, did he? He did that so that something better would come, so that something better would come. Suffering, then glory, this is God's way. This is hard for us to understand this, but think about it. God subjected creation to futility and corruption so that he could bury it and then make it spring forth in life and glory. That's what he was up to when he did it. He had something else in mind, something better than the original. Jesus says in John 12, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 1 Corinthians 15, 36, you fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. This is not just true of grains of wheat, it's not just true of bodies, it's true of the world. He subjected the world to futility and suffering and pain and corruption so that he could raise it to life again. And so the whole world is groaning groaning. But remember this, the groaning of the whole creation is not the groaning of a deathbed. It's the groaning of a maternity ward. (laughs) Put put it on the screen. Got to see it. See it? For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Well, now that changes everything, doesn't it? Jason? This groaning is not hopeless and despairing. It is painful. Oh, yeah. But it results in joy and eternal fruit. Um, A mother, a very, very recent mother, a very recent, very recent mother, someone who just had a baby, like this week, said to my wife after the baby, after everything was over and it was hard, she said, after I had my baby, I forgot all about the pain. That's how the world is too. That's how you should be. Whole creation is suffering the groaning pains, terrible pains of childbirth, but it's the pains of childbirth. That's why he says, the. The suffering is not worth to compare to the glory. Forget about the pain. There's a baby. It's my baby. This is not just true of the whole creation out there. It's true of you if you're a son of God. In fact, it's true of you. It's true of creation because it's true of you if you're a son of God. In other words, look, that's what the whole creation is waiting and longing and groaning for. It's waiting and longing and groaning for you. For you. You're the baby that makes all the pain worth it. That's what it says. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for what? The revealing of the sons of God. It made all the suffering worth it. The sons of God are here. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into, listen, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's what's, that's what's coming to all of creation. Freedom, glory, your freedom and glory if you're a son of God. And creation gets to come along. And so then the, the apostle Paul comes to back, comes back to us, and here's what he says in verse 23. And not only this, 
but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body, the resurrection, everything gets made new, we raise from the dead, that newness of life that's ours, that's freedom, that freedom that's ours, that glory that's ours, because we are the sons of God, because we are the rulers of the earth, why then the earth gets it too. That's what we wait for. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? He, God knows you can't see it yet, that's the point. But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. You want perseverance in your suffering? Then have hope. Hope, the essence of our salvation is hope. We hope for a new body, the redemption of our body, our full and complete adoption as sons. Is it here now? No. So we wait, but not in despair, not in depression, not in stoicism, not complaining. We wait eagerly with perseverance. We can't wait, but we gotta wait. So we gotta keep waiting. So now do you see, here's the thing. This is why he can say all the way up in verse 18, right at the beginning, he says this, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Oh, that's why. No matter what you have gone through, no matter what you are going through, no matter what you will go through, you know, you know, you are, either by experience or from the promise of scripture, you know you have suffering. No matter what it is, no matter what sorrows and sufferings God has appointed for you, he did it in hope. Just like he did for the whole creation, he did it in hope. He, he crafted suffering for you, not because he's mean, because there's an eternal weight of glory that he wants for you if you're a son of God. So he did it for your glory. Hope in him. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would make us believe this, make us believe the truth about us and our suffering and our future and about the world you've made and about all the lies that are being told. Help us to believe you and honor you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.